Let us pray. Father God, we come before a text in which there is so much here, far more than for just one sermon, and yet, because this passage is connected to the book that we just finished, the book of Ruth, we just pray that you bless our further understanding of this passage. We pray that, Lord, ultimately we also appreciate the fact that to one extent we are all brides. We are brides of Christ. And we are called uniquely to be prepared and to be, as members of the church, someone in service and in loving service to our King and Bridegroom. And so please, both with this text and really the texts that we will get into in Titus and Timothy in the next coming weeks, that seem to sometimes be for only one gender, Lord. Help us draw connections to the full body, through the full counsel of Scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a uh, tension in the Christian life, and the tension is this. Well, there's a couple tensions, but one tension that we're going to focus on today is the phrase, I could never do that, which really can be said in two ways. There's kind of two ditches that you can fall into with the phrase, I could never do that. And, And one ditch is the idea that we forget the fact that we worship a God who tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so sometimes, you know, if somebody might mention something or suggest that maybe we're struggling with something, oh, I could never do that. I could never do that. And the reality is, and we see this time and time again in Scripture, Actually, on downstairs on my office door, on one side I have kind of two comic, two kind of comedic images, and then on the other side I have a prayer called Take Heed, and that prayer really deals with this concept. On one side, the Bible is chock full of individuals who in their pride stumble and fall because they, they think strength is in themselves. I think of, of Peter on the night that... Jesus was betrayed and he said, you know, never me. I'll never do that. But the reality is we live a Christian life that states, apart from me, you can do nothing. I remember in seminary, a pastor um, talking about a story. And it was a, it was a big scandal in evangelical circles. You might have heard of the ministry in an inner varsity. But an individual who really helped start that ministry he fell into scandalous sin, adultery. And he was an Arminian. And he had this Reformed pastor friend, and, and they went out to breakfast after the scandal. The, the pastor did right. He did confess it publicly. He confessed his sin. And it was, it was a great scandal. It wasn't one of those situations where, sadly, we've had scandals that even... We had a recent one of somebody after his death of a great scandal of the church. But this was something that he confessed... And he was, he was over breakfast with his Calvinist friend, and this, uh, this other pastor. 
And, and at one point, the, the, the Calvinist pastor, he gets so frustrated. His name was Joe. He gets so frustrated. He goes, how could you do this? How could you act like this? And this pastor responded. He looked at him. He says, Joe, Joe, you're a Calvinist, right? He said, yes. Kind of sheepishly. Then you understand the reality that outside of God, outside of God's restraining hand of grace, you could destroy the world three times over. Could you not? And Joe goes, well, yeah, I, I do. And he goes, yeah, so Joe, I, f- I forgot that for a little while. And I paid the price. And so that is in one sense, one way we can say that. I, I could never do that. We can say that in pride. And really, that kind of way is for another kind of sermon. When it comes to this text in Proverbs, this closing text... I have heard many, especially women, say over the course of their lives, I can never be this woman. I can never be this woman. This, this ideal, it's, it's too high, it's too heady, it's too, it's too lofty, I meant to say. It's too much for me. I can never be this woman. And the reality is with this passage, there's a great encouragement. And the encouragement is actually the book of Ruth. Because there are only two times in Scripture where we have this phrase, worthy woman, in the way that is said. And one is here at the end of Proverbs. And one is in chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. Ruth is a description of the worthy woman. Actually, we don't know this or we we don't realize, well, the Protestant Old Testament canon is word for word, the same canon that you would find in a Jewish synagogue. It is ordered a little differently. You would actually, if we were, we had a Palestinian order to the canon, we would see Proverbs, and Proverbs is this book, that begins with a father and son, and the father is trying to give the son wisdom on which type of woman to marry. Don't marry Lady Folly, marry Lady Wisdom. And then at the end is the idealized description of the woman. And then immediately after that would be the book of Ruth. So that you would read Proverbs, and you would read this lofty standard, and then you would read Ruth's story, and you would go, oh, okay. And it would help ground you, and it would help make it a little more grace-based. Because as we've seen in the book of Ruth, Ruth is the Moabite. She was the candidate that needed grace. She was the outsider. She was the scorned one. She was the ridiculed one. And yet... Through the providential hand of God, she went from a pagan Moabite to being a woman who could be called worthy in God's word. And so, this is a description fully of any woman here, or anybody as a bride of Christ, and yet the fullness of it will be attained because even... As the Apostle John says, one day we will see him, and when we see him, we will be made like him. 
And so that's a way to kind of start our text, to ground our text, to understand that in this description, while we might want to say, I can never be that, because this passage holds a high standard, I can never do that, we want to connect it to the ideal woman, and even connect it to Ruth, as we're going to do today. Let me mention one other thing. Sometimes if you read old, the old theologians, the early theologians, from the first 500 years, 1,000 years of the church, even up until the Reformation, this is a very common style, there's a lot of allegory. If, you don't, if the word allegory is kind of confusing, if you've ever read like Pilgrim's Progress, that is an allegory book. And, and theologians would use allegory to explain the Bible quite a bit. And what we want to appreciate is that, as I kind of stated in the prayer, we are the bride of Christ. And so this is not a sermon just for half of the church. This is a sermon for the entire bride of the church. There are allegorical connections as well. So, with that, let us move into the text and see the grace that he has to offer. Now, when it comes to this text, it has 22 verses. We recently had a sermon that had 22 verses. It was Psalm 33. And in that psalm, I mention how every letter of the Hebrew alphabet made up a verse. That's also the case for this passage. And this passage will have the alphabetic order, the Hebrew, um, Old Testament, one letter for all 22 verses. And this would have been the passage that a Jewish mother would have taught her children the alphabet over. Hiding basically the word in their heart. Hiding that idealized Standard in her heart. This would have been a passage that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have known well. She would have learned her alphabet just so much as Psalm 119 was a passage for Solomon, a psalm for Solomon to learn his alphabet. This would have been one for a Jewish daughter to learn hers. And then, of course, it would fold into the letter of Ruth. All right. So God is a God who knows our stories. He knows that we've been a Moabite in one sense. He, and he, yet, as we are a child figuring out things in the world, we hide these truths in our heart. And so we're going to go through the list of 22 different features of a well-rounded, worthy woman or worthy bride who from A to Z is made complete in the Lord. As modern womanhood continues to convince itself her empowerment is found in forsaking qualities of the God of Scripture. The irony is the Word of God actually helps establish the dignity and honor of being a woman and womanhood. And as the modern ideal of womanhood has taken off, sadly, depression has followed. And there are depression rates within the community, as we stray farther and farther from God's ideal of, of the design between a worthy bride. And so let's get into the text. I'm actually going to, 
boil down this list of 22 into 10. And we will move quickly through this. So first, we see in verses 10 through 12, the ideal bride that the book of Proverbs seeks after is a woman of character. And God admits a woman of character in this kind is rarely found in the world. And what, what is a part of this first principle? It's being trustworthy and reliable. That she looks to the one she's wedded to as a woman wedded to her bridegroom, and she finds ways to serve him. And she's worthy and reliable in her service. And these are the first building blocks, the first piece, that she's dependable. And appreciating the allegory of this passage, my job this morning, well, as I'm wedded to Christ through his work and through the promises of his word, is that in every morning, is that ideally, I am here and you are here to complement the life of Christ, to complement the fact that Christ came, to complement the fact that Christ died upon the cross. And so the ideal woman, uh, the ideal bride understands this. And because this passage is so connected to Ruth, and we're thinking about her through this passage, as, as we see is Ruth proposes to Boaz. What happened in that moment? Ruth proposed to Boaz, and Boaz immediately says, wait, we have a few steps. We have to follow God's word here. We have to make sure the other, there's another kinsman redeemer before me. Even though I want to marry you, even though I want to be with you, there, is, there are steps that need to be taken first. And did Ruth protest and argue? Oh, come on, Boaz. We both love each other. No, she, she, she was a compliment to Boaz trying to uphold the word of God. She complimented that aspect of his life. She she was being faithful to the word and faithful to Boaz and his upholding the word. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are some of the ways we're trying to actively complement the bridegroom, Christian? How do we complement? What are the things in the week that we, we do in order to complement his work? The second principle we can see from verses 13 through 16 Second, we see the ideal bride manages what she has been entrusted with well. First off, appreciate the fact that to be managed, to be effectively managing something means you have spheres of authority. And so there are aspects where the woman of Proverbs, she is, notice it's, she is seen as it's her household, and notice that ultimately she seeks after things of value for her household. Her willing hands pursue things that will bless her household. So she will rise early. She will travel far in order to be a blessing to the household. Whatever is required to be a blessing to the household. What might God have given us influence over, Christian, in order to bless the household of God? What are you pursuing lately on behalf of your heavenly family? Where are you currently sowing seed? Where, 
what might you be working on that you hope to bear fruit in the long run for the harvest of Christ? Who is in your portfolio in one sense? For the sake of Christ, who are you currently seeking after? We always have someone we have an opportunity to bless. We look for the outward opportunity. In the book of Ruth, we saw that the individuals, the key heroic individuals, constantly understood this being a blessing to one another. The third principle we see from verses 17 through 19. And third is that the enduring bride has a unique vitality in life that is able to wisely navigate times of shortfalls, times of darkness, times of hardness. She has an energy about her. Like we saw in Ruth. Like we saw how Ruth responded, for instance, in Naomi's hour of depression. Honestly, in every chapter in Ruth, Ruth was asked to do hard things. And yet she responded with this vitality, this great life. In chapter 1, she's asked to go to Bethlehem, who her, which her mother-in-law doesn't believe holds a future for her. And yet she still goes. In chapter 2, her friend is so depressed, her mother-in-law, that she is, has uniquely bonded herself to. And so she goes out into the harvest, into the fields, a field that she has no right to, in a, in a town that she would have been mocked and ridiculed in, as we found several times in that book that she constantly was warned about walking in. As we look to chapter 3, we think about... It was Ruth who proposed to Boaz. That would still kind of, even in our own society, that seems a little upside down. But she has the courage to do that. Naomi gives her that courage. She does not complain. And then we saw in chapter 4 how she gave birth to this child. And she hands it to her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law receives the child by adoption. The mother-in-law even becomes, as the scriptures make clear, the one who the neighborhood says, that's Naomi's child, and the one who breastfeeds the child. Sacrifice, 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 and sacrifice. And she meets all seasons with wisdom and godly character. Not complaining. She has this unique ability in her vitality and her relationship with God to bless others around her. Number four, we see in verse 20 that the worthy woman is compassionate and caring. You know, Hollywood only seems to be able to make movies now with heroines that beat up on men. That all, what, what women can do is, you know, if you, you have enough faith or what have you, get bit by a spider or something, you can smash all these men down. That's, that's what we want to see in our women in Hollywood, right? No. I'm sick of it, honestly. It's, it's, it's not what the scriptures are saying are the best parts of the bride. The biblical idea for the bride is that there is a tenderness in the life of a woman that is unique. There is almost this, this loving kindness, this almost diaconate kind of quality in the midst of a community. 
women at their best, and, and we have wonderful women that help complement us in this way, in this congregation. Find ways of service and love and tenderness that us men are just usually too stubborn to even see. So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful quality. One that we're all called to, though, by extension, also have. It's a unique sweetness. Number five, we can see in verse 21. We see the ideal bride, a worthy woman, is a woman who is not just living her life from moment to moment, but she actually has the foresight to anticipate the future needs of her household. And notice, it's not called the husband's household here. But actually in the Hebrew, it's in the feminine possessive. It's, it's, she has a unique role of authority in the household. doesn't mean that she doesn't have spheres of authority over her. But the woman has a unique role of anticipating certain things that might cause others to fall or to fear. But she can stand strong against. Those scarlet kinds of moments where sins and struggles might befall a household. The bride of Christ must anticipate all seasons, all weather that might befall its home. You know, um, I won't use that illustration, actually. So we think about even Ruth and Orpha from chapter 1. Orpha saw the problem and she did not go forward into the future wisely. Ruth did, even though it looked bad for her at the start, because she had a greater confidence. She had an understanding, a clarity that Orpah did not have. And that allowed God to uniquely use her in a redemption story. Number six is found in verse 22. Now I think the ESV reading of this verse is intentionally confusing. Though you can see some of what I'm about to point out. But first, when Naomi gave Ruth the idea to propose to Boaz, what did she then kind of, what did Ruth then do in the passage? She showered, she put some perfume on, she made herself appealing to her, the one she coveted, the one she desired. There's a sense of that. There's a Hebrew word here. Marbadim, used in this verse. And it's about the woman who prepares herself to have a unique intimacy, a place of intimacy in one sense. We think of the ancient Jewish home, it was one room. And yet there would be this this curtained off area. There would be a private area, a a place for the bride and the bridegroom to desire intimacy. I had to even think about the fact that for, for seasons at a time, it's sometimes popular to create a place of prayer in a home. Now, uniquely, I, I get to live in the parsonage, which means I go outside. I have wonderful places to pray at all times. But to think about this as talking to the bride, the church, do you have places in your life that you've carved out, places of intimacy where you can talk to your bridegroom? Prayerful places, places where you can seek the Lord intimately. Where do you go to pursue deep intimacy with your bride? Worthy bride joyously seeks out such moments and might even set aside a location for her and her bridegroom. Seventh, we find in verse 23, 
She honors and respects the abilities God has blessed her husband with. And really, the reverse of that reality is also true. She does not undercut what she believes are his shortcomings. The fact that this bride is referenced as married to an elder is interesting. An elder, of course, is one ordained by God to make certain kinds of unique judgments within the community of God. Yet, who is the ultimate elder? Christ, of course. And so, what would it look like if Ruth had undercut her ultimate elder in Christ? We just kind of march through the four moments of Ruth with the four dilemmas of those four chapters. She never really gets angry at God. I'm sure and I'm certain Ruth has had moments of lament and struggle and sorrow because she's human. But the author never brings up really anything from Ruth that would undercut who she knows her God to be. And in one sense, that is part of this ideal. That both in a marital relationship, in the household, and in ultimately our greater marital relationship to Christ, we do not undercut God's providence. We do not undercut the roads that he has us walk. We want to be people who ultimately are, are secure in who we are and who our bridegroom is. Now, next is verse 24. That's point eight for those of my note takers. There are often debates sometimes within even certain branches of uh, Christianity that have convinced themselves that a woman's place can only be found in a home. They never should necessarily seek after employment or work to such individuals. If you hold that to an extreme, you can point out verse 24 to them. This bride is willing to be a provider. She anticipates, she has an entrepreneurial heart, if so called upon. Let's look back at that life of Ruth again. Here Naomi and her were starving in chapter 2. They're barely making ends meet by the letter of the law. And Ruth boldly asked Boaz, hey, can we do this a little differently? You know, this, this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. She, she has this kind of entrepreneurial spirit in order to provide for the household of her and Naomi. And he responds positively to that. And so we see again, that's, that's another quality to this worthy woman, this worthy bride. Ninth, we can find in verses 25 through 27. The ninth quality is that this woman ultimately knows who she is. She's clothed, as God's word says, in strength and dignity. You know, all of us will endure times of insults and gossip and abuse that are not true of us, or even if they are true, not kind to us. This woman has such a relationship with her Lord And that's a key element there, with the Lord. That even though this bride is often criticized, she knows who she ultimately is. And she strives to make sure even her own 
children know the blessed reality that gives her the ability to look at life with joy and kindness, laughter and dignity. Tenth and lastly, we can find in verses 28 through 31, as the last letters of the alphabet of a worthy woman help come to a close, help make clear, they make clear that a robust woman of quality has a faith in the Lord that her community acknowledges. Her family, her husband, people notice her wonderful life. Women often tend to feel invisible. And yet God's promise for the worthy woman, the worthy bride, is that their life will matter. Their life will matter. Think of how Ruth and Naomi, their life seemed at one point to not matter, even when they die. We, we know how God ends up using their life, but when they die, they never knew King David was going to be their descendant, let alone the manger. They don't know that. They wouldn't know that until they passed away and gone to see the Lord. I, I think of funerals I've been to, and, and it never seems to fail with a woman of high biblical quality. There are always these insights and stories that you hear, and you go, wow, I never knew that about the individual. I never knew that about her. There is so much in the worthy woman that will be seen one day, that will be known at the gates, at the heavenly gates, the ultimate reality. So the life of a woman, whether ancient or modern, while it's sometimes overlooked, to be a bride of the bridegroom, especially the bridegroom that is Christ the Lord, does mean that for him to increase our own personal agenda, our own personal desire to be our own gods, serving only for ourselves, needs to be cast away so that the glory of our bridegroom might reign supreme. And how? How can we easily do something? How can we do something like this? Quite easily, really. We follow the pattern of our bridegroom. Because it was he who made himself for a little while lower than the angels, who was overlooked first in the manger, and then after he was sentenced to death upon a cross, crowned with thorns. It was his being overlooked, his being cast off, that we can now say, oh, what goodness that we have in being blessed by him. Even though he allowed himself to be cast off by the world, to be ignored by the world for a little while, we Christians should know more than anyone. While life might appear inconsequential and overlooked at times, small faithful acts of love can change the entire course of history itself. The story of Ruth, the story of the Proverbs woman of 31 is really the same story. God takes us, the lowly, the people who look at His per perfect holy standard and realize in our own strength, we can never do that. We can never do that. We can never be those people. And He makes us more than we ever dared dream because He has made it His mission 
to buy us back from sin, to cover us with His wings, to be our kinsman, greater kinsman redeemer, so that we might be His holy bride, the church. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that even as we live in a time where people criticize and mock Scripture, and they suggest that it has, is filled with antiquated ideas for both men and women. That through the book of Ruth, that even through the book of Proverbs, you show us that you highly esteem the worthy woman, the worthy bride who comes to you. That it is actually through your word that we can best see the value and dignity of women and understand how we complement one another as both man and woman in this world. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are the God who rescues us, the Moabites, and begins to build within us a new kind of love, a love that surpasses all understanding. We know it is you who is our builder, because without you we can do nothing. And so we thank you that we have you, because with you we have everything. So we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.